This is Camp Hacker. Come find our show notes and our blog for camp directors and leaders at camphacker.tv. Hello, camp pros, and welcome to a special Camp Hacker podcast interview edition. I'm pleased to welcome Kevin Kelly to the show. Kevin, who's uh, labeled as the senior maverick of Wired Magazine and is on the board of some really cool projects and uh, doing some really interesting things. Longtime listeners to the show would have been indirectly influenced by Kevin because of our Tool of the Week segment in the Camp Hacker podcast, and that is directly inspired by one parts of Kevin. Kevin's website called Cool Tools. And uh, Kevin, both of the Cool Tools books have been Tools of the Week at different points. So um, I want to take a minute and just uh, and just welcome you to the Camp Hacker Show and, and thank you for being with us. Oh, it's truly my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. So Kevin's newest book is called The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. And uh, Kevin, as you can imagine, we as an industry are people who um, love the personal connection between um, older teens, young adults and younger kids and um, that mentoring relationship. And, and there's a lot of weariness, leeriness uh, in our industry about technology and how it's affecting how we work with kids. Um, and, and I'm going to come back around to that, how, how technology is going to influence how families and, and kids relate to each other and, and what their futures would be. But I want to start with some direct questions that come out of my reading of the book. So and I know from reading the, the interviews that you've done in the past that, um, that that you're inspired by technology and interested in it and, and really seem to be sucking up all of the information that you can to process it. And The Inevitable has been a great, great read in terms of, uh, of helping me get a feel for what is coming. Um, but people being tend to be black and white about these things and they really see technology as being a barrier to connection with nature or even a spiritual connection but you're able to, to dive deep into the thinking about tech and still maintain a a, a connection to nature an interest in those things and and uh, even an interest in your own spiritual life what's your recipe for that to be able to, to mm. balance those two sides of it well i i um do tend to believe in Sabbaths, sabbaticals, vacations, minimizing things if at all possible, and um, being pretty selective, maybe in the kind of the Amish way of um, even choosing things that may seem add to the outward eye to be inconsistent. So our our family has never had TV. Um, our kids grew up without it. Um, yet we were the first to have the internet on our block right. and, and Netflix. So I was, I was only one of the original subscribers to Netflix. And, um, so, um, I think, um, being not, you know, being not afraid to be, selective and pick this and not that even if it doesn't seem to be consistent if it works for you then that's one of the things I would suggest and then um, you know um, you, you may have to make it a point but I, and we do make it a point to yeah. try and get out into the um, into nature as much as possible I, I am fortunate and privileged to live our houses right up against um, 
basically a national park. Right. Um, and yet we're in uh, almost within sight of downtown San Francisco. It's kind of curious here how that works, but that's the advantage is that we have coyote and fox in our backyard <laughs> and bobcat and up on the hill is mountain lion. So, um, and yet, yet within 17 minutes, I can be parked in front of the offices of Wired and South of Market. San Francisco. So that's part of how we do it. Not everybody has that option, but most people could. You, 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 the nature is a lot closer than you think if you give a wide um, version to nature. Yes. Um, we At Long Now, where I'm a board member, we had a woman give a talk just um, last month talking about the fact that in there is no uh, such thing as a completely untouched nature in the world today right. everything has been groomed by thousands hundreds of thousands of years of human presence and in some ways um an overgrown meadow an overgrown lot in a city can have as much diversity and as much wild life going on as uh, a national park and that that's actually close and if you are aware of that you can get almost as much from that mm -hmm. and uh, walk in in a big park as as you could outside in in yosemite and so yeah. that there's there's people are underestimate the power of that small area what it can do so um so anyway so so I, th I think that's that that that's it is available to, to people and people should take a, advantage of it and i think um yeah you definitely want to leave behind that so that when you return to the technology you have renewed enthusiasm you you have a new perspective each time you leave it and come back i think it gives you an additional perspective you also exercise a different part of your brain when you're when you're um, out of it yep. and um i think it's kind of like diverse foods you want to have as many the the healthiest food is actually very diverse and so yes. you want to have as much variety in your diet as possible and the same thing with your with your uh, sensory uh, uh you want to have as many uh, different and varieties of interactions as you can from drawing by hand to drawing with the computer to yeah. typing to to writing so so the more the more muscles you can kind of exercise that way the better and 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 the other the last thing i would say about that is it's not a binary thing as you said people tend to think of this as black and white but right. there's nothing to me that's been exhilarating about this idea that there's in-betweens and convergences and mixes as Pokemon Go, yeah. which is um, getting people, you know, it's sort of the embedded digital into the physical realm, which I've been talking about for years and years, yeah. which is that we're going to put the digital embedded into the physical. And that, um, I mean, imagine planting Pokemon hidden in deep in the forest and getting kids out there to hunt for experiences. It's not just yes. not just going to be gathering Pokemon. They're going to be, they're going to go out and maybe they'll have VR spectacles on or something, but they'll have an experience after kind of like orienteering, running right. through the woods, trying to find things, getting rewards. There is so much to do. This is not the black and white world of you're there in your basement not moving or you're out hiking up a mountain. No, there's just, there's tons in between. Yes, of course. And it sounds like you're describing almost a, a 
conscious consciousness. So you're you're taking a point to note, taking the time or providing the opportunity to notice those things. Right. It's you're being deliberate. I mean, yeah. I, I think that's the Zen attitude yeah. of the world. Uh, I, I've talked about this before, but the Zen monks have this thing where you if you're you, you sit it's or if you're going to sit you sit if you're going to walk you walk but you don't wobble you, you 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 kind of do one or the other and you do it wholeheartedly at the time deliberately yeah. and i think that's a lot of what photography is when the difference between say photography or just walking around is is that you are very deliberate about what you're seeing you you have to you're focusing on something you're you're paying attention you're looking at some something deliberately instead of just glancingly and so for me photography is something i bring when i go outside to nature so i i have technology but it's actually assisting me in looking at things there can i walk by something but if i have a say a macro lens on something i'm going to look down and see the little tiny lichen and see the little forest of lichen the little miniature thing and suddenly there's this whole world that i would not have seen because I've deliberately tried to see something, and that that camera is is a crutch, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's, it's a device that that harnesses or focuses my and helps me be deliberate. And so there's in that way, you know, we we can use these things, technology to to in help us be deliberate about what we're conscious of in nature. A microscope, a microscope can do the same thing too. Yeah, yeah. That um, that intentionality that you're describing, specifically talking about nature in that instance, but thinking about how we apply that across wider things. You've talked about tackling generational, societal, generational problems with all the opportunities of of the coming technologies. How do we, as conscious human beings, how do we sharpen that skill of Going from the that that old quote about um, the the geniuses of our generation just trying to get people to click more ads, how do we move from that transactional thing unto pushing people to do and think about and try to solve bigger generational problems? Yeah, that that's a I mean it's a very profound question, and um, there there is a sense in which. Um, Despite our prosperity, um, we as a society may not be looking far enough out and ahead. And, and I'm involved with a group called the Long Now Foundation, mm -hmm. which is trying to foster long-term thinking, generational thinking, generational attitudes, uh, working on things that may not be completed in your own lifetime, and certainly trying to go beyond just the next quarter, which is sort of fundamentally the bias of you know, capitalistic yes. markets. That's yep. very hard. Although occasionally you find someone like a Jeff Bezos or or Steve Jobs that may take a little bit longer view, but it's it's still tough. And and by the way, um, but but one of the, the the consequences of a lot of the capitalism is that there is a lot of money being made, and a lot of that private money that that wealth is being used in the kind of nonprofit world to focus on long-term um, thinking things that are grand. And so um, so one answer to that, which is maybe not the only answer, but one answer is you make a lot of money that is taken out of the capital markets and it's used yes. in a philanthropic way. And there is there is a huge 
a bunch of money there right. that, that can be used. And some of it, you know, in all honesty, is being used that way. Not all of it, but, but a lot of it is. And part of one of the things that we want to do as a society is to elevate that role model, particularly in new areas of the world like China and in Asia where there's a lot of new wealth and not a lot of role models in that philanthropic um, um, model. And, and to, 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 to then have – have good examples of that and to encourage that. And so that's one of the things we can do as a society right now is to encourage that worldwide, that when people do have wealth, that they can shift it to the long term. And so um, that's one thing. But but yeah. the, the, other, the other way, I think, is in my eyes is actually to encourage an optimistic view of the future because I think it's very hard right. – for people to think long term if they don't believe that things are getting better um and um because even because in pessimism in my eyes actually makes people short term because they want to solve the thing right now and um i think sometimes um the people behave better i think most times people behave better if they're optimistic and 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 take and take a longer view uh, and so I think that we also need to encourage positive uh, views of the future uh, because there's a tendency uh, in the world of storytelling, which is that a world that a, a world where uh, a horrible world is much makes a much better story than a boring right. world that works. <laughs> yes. And so. Um, there's a there's a bias in Hollywood movies and science fiction against a a world that you want to live in because it doesn't make as good of a story and we're so hardwired for that that and the people are getting so good about telling stories that that you know all these dystopian worlds are the only thing you see I can't I, I can I have not been able to think of a single Hollywood science fiction movie that there was a world on Earth that I wanted to live in right and so. I think that's a second um, challenge or hurdle for trying to make a um, a world that does take the long term is that we need more scenarios of the future that are friendly to us. And I attempted to do a little bit of that in the book, The Inevitable, where I had these vignettes uh, yes. at the end of each um, trend to try and – paint a little picture of something that might be a place that people might want to go. Right. Right. I love, and I love those little, so this is what my day would look like sections of the right. book. It's certainly a, a favorite part of what I got out of it. We skipped past quite quickly. I just want to come back for one moment to the long now foundation because in, in the work that we do, we were thinking about families and generations and, and, and often some some of the people who listen to this, their camps would have had relationships with families for now a hundred years. And um, I wonder what, thinking about the Long Now, what what are the questions that the Long Now Foundation is is working on, pondering, discussing? Yeah, the Long Now Foundation tries to be pretty agnostic about its views of the future, saying we're, we're not trying to predict the future, we're only trying to encourage people to have their, you know, to make their own prediction, to to have, not even prediction, but to, but just to take a perspective in which you reward long-term thinking, and um, so 
um, we like, like like we one of the projects that we have that hasn't gone very far, but but um, we may resurrect was um, trying to hold people accountable for predictions. And so we thought, yeah. well, you, you should be able to make predictions better over time, but there's been no accountability for making prediction. Anybody can make a prediction, even if it's widely um, disseminated, yeah. maybe even make some impact. But but if you're wrong, there's no there's no punishment. There's no penalty. If you're right, people might remember it, but but um, most of them are forgotten. And so, there. It's not that we want to punish people, but we want to elevate the logic. We want to reward the logic for making a good prediction, mm-hmm. a good meaning accurate, and um, in that in that way, kind of cultivate the the methodology and, and bring the better the better methods forward. Um, and so those who are using inferior methods to make predictions that aren't uh, valid, then yes. they'll they'll be penalized. And so that's just kind of one example of saying, that, yeah, we can get better. We can kind of encourage people to think long term, and people should be making, should be thinking about things out ten or twenty years because. If you have a business, hopefully the business is around by then, and you have to be doing things now. If you have a family, hopefully you have a generation that will be there in in 20, 30 years, and so you can be thinking about that now. Um, We like the um, quote of Jonas Salk, the the guy um, uh, who did the Salk vaccine, but he says, uh, we want to be good ancestors. Right. Making being being a good ancestor is is is, is kind of the the the, the assignment, um, and so that's sort of what we're doing. We're mostly at Lung now. We hold a seminar every month. We actually have uh, one this week, and which is me. Um, and this there are seminars on on long term thinking. People who have various ideas about how we do this, what we should be thinking about, what to think about, what how to apply it to you know diverse uh, things from um, food, the long-term thinking to f- from food to transportation to cities to the environment. Uh, there are so many so many ways to apply this, and we're pretty again agnostics. There's no right answers. We're just really kind of basically asking the question. Right. All right. The one of the overriding messages, and you said you, you try to look at these things as, as an optimist. One of the overriding messages is that there is big change, big messages of the book, is that there is big change coming, but that we can be smart about it or, or deal with it um, in in positive ways. And um, as an industry, our industry who looks after kids for a day at a time or up to eight weeks at a time um, and gives them an experience outside of, of what they get at home in school. Uh, technology is something that has been um, a hard transition for our industry, dealing with kids who are used to being connected all the time and, um, and families that are used to being able to easily t- touch base with their kids mm. over and over again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's been a struggle, but what, what we're seeing and what you describe in the book is that there will come a point where everything that we have will be connected Mm -hmm. uh, online in some way. Um, 
but I wonder if I wonder if you could could talk to um, the point that you make in the book that um, in developing AIs and and robots to take over all these things, what it's really going to free up people to do is um, experience based careers. So you know, for us, it's very much this stuff that the industry does where yeah. providing experiences for families, teaching kids to grow and giving them some um, new experiences that they don't get. So that's Yeah, yeah. I mean, point. I, 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 I yeah, say that I think most of the roles and tasks we give to the robots are going to be anything that can be defined in terms of efficiency and camping. You know, summer camp is like probably the least efficient thing around yep. in many ways. And all as all human relations are, they're inherently inefficient. Um, and so I think our, our uh, humans will gravitate to that and hopefully they will actually um, come to inc- uh, appreciate their value more, maybe even value them more uh, in those kinds of roles. Um, but I am, I am sympathetic to, to, the, to the challenge you have of like, you know, how much and how, in what way does technology involved in this? Um, but but I, I, I do know, I mean, I think basically that these are technological suites, right? These are suites and that we have to kind of uh, treat them like suites in this, like, they're, they're, I think we're going to have limits. We're just going to simply uh, have to limit them. I think banning them is just, <laughs> it's like banning sugar. You can't yeah. really ban it. You just have to kind of moderate it and you have to kind of be aware of it and do it deliberately and choose when you have it and stuff like that. And I think technological, it's not just going to be phones, it'll be about all these other things as well. Um, connection, though, is, is is a large part of it. That, that it's just, it's it's moderated and limited and, and I think there'll be a kind of an emerging understanding that's, that's what you do. You know, the most parents are going to be fine if you say we're going to have, we're not going to have sugar in every meal and every mm-hmm. every food. We're just we're going to restrict it in some ways, and I think the same thing um, will come to kind of understand, you know, the kinds of little things that people do, putting the phones away. Someone was I was uh, oh I was Sherry Turkle who has a great book um, was talking about that they had um, a box at the front door, and people when they came in they put their phones in this box. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like the kids piling up the phones on face down the tables at the restaurants. Um, I, I think, and then there'll be technological solutions too. I mean, uh, I, I don't think it's anything wrong with it, but they'll have jammers. You know, basically yeah. this is a this this area right here. When you go into it, it doesn't work. It won't work. It shouldn't work. We don't want it to work because we have you know it's like. A, it's like going to church you're going to be quiet that's just what you do there and here we don't have these um and i think that's going to be seen as you know as good as something that's just acceptable wise and um it can be either etiquette or aided by technology but but i think we'll evolve i mean the thing i want to emphasize is is that you know social media is less than two thousand days old right it's just brand new. We, we have really no idea how it yeah. works, why it works. We have no idea how to kind of range it in. It's going to take a generation to kind of just figure it out. And um, so I, I think the, the current model is you try as many experiments as possible. Um, you try stuff, and, and you don't get wigged out if it doesn't work. You just try something else. And... Um, you try it deliberately. You, these are experiments because we uh, don't know 
how it works. We don't know. And I think saying we don't know and that we're going to try something is really the best thing right now to do. Key to success. Yeah. 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 I, I also wonder if um, the research that comes from from the technology, the entrepreneurial side of technology, if some of that's going to aid in things like sh gathering and, and shifting attention to um, you know, to things that, that a recreation professional would be interested in learning about nature. Like if we can, instead of just being a lecturer, now we have the research to help us become better at saying, I'm going to do this to get your attention and I'm going to keep it um, because I have some really cool things to show you that are going to have impact on you. Well, there's, there's, I mean, I was, um, so I, 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 I'm very bullish on the potential for like virtual reality to, yeah. to be educational. I mean, there, to me, there's, the, the, so, so this is a little bit of a, of a rant, but there's, yeah, go. <laughs> um, the way virtual reality works is it's not just in your eyes. It's there, the, the, the sense of presence that you have, the sense of being somewhere else, the sense that you have something else is there for real. That sense operates at a much lower, deeper part of your brain than just your, your eyeballs yeah. and where, where you see things or even where you read them, you actually feel them. They're, these are experiences. And in education, when, when you are showing someone the 3D volumetric model and they're kind of moving around and play with it and, and engage with it using their whole bodies, so, 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 so it's not just sitting down. You, you are, it can be calisthenic. It can be a cardio workout. And, and you're engaging with it. Um, and, and when you're learning there, you remember it differently and deeper and um the, the most fabulous vr experience i had was something called the void where it was a huge room that you're in and you're navigating through it and you have a full you have a vest and gloves and helmet and sound and it's a full body thing and it yeah. was amazing you are your heart's pumping you're you, you are really going through it climbing and whatnot and so um there's several things from that. One, one is that, in some senses, that's not that far different than climbing over an obstacle course. Yep. Okay. Uh, secondly, the point I want to make is that the learning from that operated a very different way than sitting in a classroom reading something or even watching a movie or watching uh, something mm -hmm. on a flat screen. It's much deeper. So it's very easy for me to kind of imagine um, something that's, again, this hybrid where um, it's very physical, um, it's very deep learning. Um, and the third thing I wanted to say was the, 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 the model for a lot of this, like the void was as a kind of like an arcade or theme park thing where you, mm -hmm. um, where they have state of the art and you pay to go, um, you pay to go there. So, so you try, it's a destination. Yes. Um, and some of those ingredients are the same thing about camp. And so it's, it's not, it's not hard for me to believe in some senses that you could have at camp something that was beyond or different than what kids would have at home. Right. Maybe, maybe in this kind of overlay where you have, uh, a very physical space that has an overlay Yes. And it's kind of like paintball. It's just something you can't do in your backyard. You, right. you, you've, you need that, that arena to do it in. 
and um, there can be a kind of a learning that's not at all about sitting in your butt. It's very much about doing and being. Um, and it's of a type that simply may be hard to get any other way. Right. Right. Well, it, it, one of the, <clears throat> pardon me, one of the big biases of our industry, I feel, is that, um, is that so many people, camp leaders, feel that kids have to get away um, physically leave the city or go to a special park um, to have the kind of experiences that, that a lot of us have had growing up where we've had this magical experience been tried these great things because we felt confident in doing so. But I think a bias is that this has to be a place away. And maybe the summer camp industry of 20 years from now is hiring these same great people with young adults and giving them these great skills of looking after kids and um you know taking the having those families bring the experience to themselves so you have kids from seven time zones in one place virtually um developing relationships learning new things trying trying stuff that they can't get in school it's very possible and that would be another option too or maybe even a way to extend the camp beyond um some set number of days or weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I have said elsewhere, and I think it's absolutely true that the VR virtual reality will become one of the most the most social of all our social media because it, it is going to be incredibly social yeah. in you know many of its forms. And so, having worlds that are complete and full and explorable and teachable, teaching. Uh, teachable in that sense um is very 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 plausible and um uh so you could have a virtual camp somewhere campground that would be um i think the the ones that be most valuable the ones that where they're different where it's not just a replication but they're doing yeah they don't have gravity or who knows what it is yeah um and so um, where 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 you you know you have people you can have the same thing mentors and and uh, guides and others and experiences. Um, that's definitely um, one venue, but it's not the only venue because mm-hmm. what I was I mean to me there's there, there's there, it's not it's a whole continuum from those where you are at your home and you're participating to those where you actually are participating in something. Maybe you're in a, you are in a place that's not, that's not in your home, but yep. it might not be a uh, hundred miles away. Maybe just downtown, uh, to a place that is a hundred miles away and it has nature, but also has some other, um, version of things where there's, there's an, again, there's an overlay on top. So, so all those are possible. And the thing about, technology is that generally we have additional choices rather than removal of old choices so i mean you can books there'll be there'll be paper printed books forever yes if you want to have a book you have kindle book they'll have other kinds of ebooks there'll be you know youtube plus a movie plus whatever so so all these choices will accumulate and for me the answer is generally all the above mm-hmm. and um uh, I, I think the the you know camp of the future is really one that has all those different modes. Right, right. Kevin, one of the ideas that that I found so attractive in in the inevitable was um, in the chapter on crowdfunding when you're talking about digital socialism, 
and um, being Canadian and not does the word socialism doesn't doesn't bother you. I know, no, it or, or Europeans, but the Americans is like, yeah, yeah, I know, it's a dirty <laughs> so, word. Yeah. So, um, so in, in essence, I mean, to boil it down. It, this digital socialism you describe is about having a common problem and using new tools to solve that together. And that's really the mission of, of what we do with this podcast and the other services we offer to the industry is figure out ways to work together to solve problems. Um, because the, the people in the industry believe in, in the, in what they're doing, what they offer for kids and for families. But how do you see in the future that, um, people with this interest and this desire and the future tools that they can turn their attention to solving the struggles of a family better with the tools that are coming. Hmm. Well, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I think as you know, I mean, it's a very broad thing. Hmm. Troubles is, is yeah. wide. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I, I think, you know, there'd be no disagreement between any of us. If I said that I don't think technology is always, um, this uh, the thing that's needed i mean it's like in people ask me about technology in schools and in my responses depends on the age because i think like k to eight or something to me most of what happens in school k to eight is character forming it's yeah. values attributes basic skills it's not about knowledge and i think it's like more like child rearing at that point and and there i think technology is really supplemental at the most it's it's not i mean the kinds of things you're teaching or hoping to teach then are, are how to learn you know the joy of learning how, how to be a good person critical thinking all these other things that where, where technology is tangential to it it's not central um so and i think you know in human relations that's Kind of what we were saying earlier, yeah. you know, a lot of this, if it's about efficiency, it can go to the bots and robots, but most of it's not about efficiency, it's about these other much messier things. And so, I, I don't see, I don't think necessarily think technology is playing a prime role in those kinds of things. Gotcha. Um, nonetheless, there are, you know, technology itself creates problems, and in those cases, I think technology can be part of the solution. Yeah. Um, you know, like drugs, drugs, drugs are a kind of technology. So I think there's a legitimate role of other technology in trying to treat some kinds of those addictions. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, as a blanket statement, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that I see I'm not so quick myself to always sure. bring technology into into these things. I think um, I'm a pluralist in that sense of like um, trying to keep as many different uh, solutions, many different ways, many different options open, including the ones that we would think of as not so technological. Yes. Take a walk without a camera. Mm -hmm. Take a walk right. with a camera. Uh, stay in your home, do a virtual walk. I mean, do uh, have a diversity to me really cares lots of things. Right, right. Well, then, Kevin, I'd like to change a little bit direction as we come to wrap this interview up. Um, one of the things that I admire that is such a big part of 
I've, you've said it's a big part of your development and the way you think is that you um, put yourself in uncomfortable situations often through uncomfortable is maybe not the right word, but you challenge yourself in new situations yeah. mm-hmm. through travel. Right. And right, right. Um, one of the things that I find frustrating both in, in America and in Canada that we don't have a culture of a gap year. Yeah. Like there, there is in yeah. Europe in, and in Australia. And I, I wonder how we get this isn't, I'm not, not looking for a technological answer, but I'm wondering I, how do we get people to value the travel and the experience yeah, of getting yeah. out of your hometown? Yeah. Um, it's not just even the gap year. I mean, I, I, I said elsewhere, I'm a firm believer in having a mandatory national service for two mm. years. Yeah. Um, and that national service would include many, many options where we're sending kids overseas, you know, visa, peace corps, all this kind of stuff. And so you have your choice. You have to do something for two years as a service and you can work in inner city in the U S you can go to, you know, uh, uh, wherever Brazil and work in the hinterlands. You can go what there's, there has to be something and there'll be probably lots of programs yeah. and some of them would be kind of maybe border in terms of their disregulation. That's okay too. Yeah. It's like get out for two years, get a passport, see your own country from different eyes. Um, you know, confront the unknown and then get mixed up with, with people f- not from your background and um, nothing would I think help the US k- weird um, terrible uh, notion of exceptional, exceptionalism as getting people out and seeing that we're not exceptional in that sense at all and that um, uh, and I'm not speaking about Canada I'm mostly yeah. America and um, I, I but I, th- I think that kind of um, real uh, getting outside, looking back and seeing the viewpoint from other people's point of view, whatever whatever else happened, would be incredibly transformative for the country. So I so I think you know I'm I I I'd be willing to to subsidize that and there and let alone just the good that it would do. Um, the, the, the country it's not every single Peace Corps person that I have ever talked yes. to has, has said exactly the same thing right. which is I have no idea whether when I my two years had any effect on those countries but man did it change me right. and so um, and I but I do think that it had some effect um, in, in cumulative yeah. motion so um, that's what I would do I have you know I don't know. It's possible that this could happen, but that's how I would do it. Right. Right. And if you're lucky enough to be, have any kind of uh, wealth or privilege and you have success, then you definitely um, should either have your kids or do yourself, whatever it is, take advantage of that because um, uh, it, it, it's it's the the um, the way that being forced to see differently is to me the seeing differently and thinking differently is the entire engine of the new economy. Mm. And, um, and, um, you know, that may be part of what your, your camps are about is cultivating that. And, uh, um, in some cases for many people, nature is different enough from the city Mm. that, that, Mm. that that is one of the things that's going on is they're actually seeing things 
differently, learning how to see things differently. And um, it may be that part of what um, is maybe deliberately emphasized in, in these kind of camps is, is that you are you know, cultivating that seeing seeing the world differently, different point of view, and maybe there's things that can accentuate that even from within the camp experience. Right. Right. Well, Kevin, I, I really want to thank you for awesome insights and, and great ideas and, and a, an amazing book. So before I ask my last question, I will tell people that um, the book is called The Inevitable, and it's by Kevin Kelly, and I uh, heartily recommend it. It's, it's great for people in our industry, for parents, for uh, everybody who's um, thinking past tomorrow. Um, to consider all these the different forces that we didn't even talk about them in, in real specifics, but uh, worth checking out. So I encourage people to please go check out The Inevitable from Kevin Kelly. Uh, Kevin, as a final question, I, I'd like to ask you, um, when you were a kid or young adult, teen, whichever, was there, was there one first adult who noticed you, um, mm. who, who really saw you as a, an important person? Mm. Hmm. Well, um, when I was in high school, I had a track coach mm-hmm. who was actually the journalism teacher, and um, he was very tough, very um, challenging. Um, and I don't think he saw me different, but he did. But 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 he. he there was one thing that he did that was he believed I could run faster than I thought I could run. Yes. Um, and that was all. But that was sort of um, um, – but, but, you know, I, I kind of I, – I, the entire time I kind of was cringing a little bit because he was like, you know, I mean, like you had to be on time. There was like no excuse. There was like, you know, he didn't care. It's like, you're going to commit to this or you're not going to commit to it. And yeah. There's nothing yeah, yeah. in between. And, um, you know, I, I certainly bristled under that, but at the same time, uh, there was something very refreshing and bracing about it. So it wasn't that he particularly treated me any differently or so mm-hmm. special, although as I said, the one thing he he knew is I could run more than I thought, or faster than I thought I could, and he kind of brought me. You know, he he moved me up and showed me that he was right. Yeah. So right. that 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 did stick stuck stuck with me, and um, uh, the one person right. I think of right now. Yeah, right on. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And, and Kevin, honestly, I'm so grateful that you'd, you'd make the time for us and, and for our listeners. And uh, thanks for a wonderful book. I really appreciate your great questions and your interest and enthusiasm for my work. And I'm sure your readers will enjoy the book. I, I really appreciate the time I've had to uh, talk about it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care, Kevin Kelly. Yep. Bye-bye. The Camp Hacker Podcast is brought to you by Beth and Travis Allison, summer camp leadership training and marketing consultants. Thanks for listening. Camp Hacker, bringing your world into focus.